1: and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way.
2: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we're going to talk about collaboration, but not just any collaboration, radical collaboration. So I want you to be thinking as we go through this show, what would it look like if you could get your team, the team that you work on or the team that you lead, to collaborate in a more radical way? What if you could bring down the defensiveness and really increase that collaboration? And how can that team have a better dialogue, more openness, more risk taking, more cooperation, more support, more trust, more optimism? And I want to tell you from the outset it's not impossible. So, with me today is Jim Tam. Now, Jim has a very interesting career. For most of his career, he has been a senior administrative law judge dealing with collective bargaining disputes in California. And he has mediated more school district labor strikes than any other person in the United States. And, Jim, I'm not so sure I would have wanted your job and trade for that one. But now he's... Indeed, an important one, though. But now he teaches collaboration skills, and he teaches in the Talent Development Program at Harvard University in the International Management Program at the Stockholm School of Economics, at the Leadership Academy for the University of California, at NASA for the United States Space Administration and at the Wallenberg Institute in Sweden. And he also works in high-end leadership programs within large global clients. His book, Radical Collaboration, has been an Amazon top seller for a while now. Um, And if you want to reach him, the best way to get him is at www.radicalcollaboration.com. Jim, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, Wanda. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm
2: really looking forward Now, I made a joke about your background. But actually, I can imagine starting with um, bargaining disputes and labor strikes and trying to work your way through those really does set the tone for your strength and collaboration skills.
3: It's a pretty adversarial environment. And so if you can make it work there, you can make it work pretty much any place.
2: Yeah, people think there are politics in corporate life, I can imagine, not nearly as much as a labor school strike. All right, so let's start at the top. Um, I made a bunch of statements about, you know, if the team could have more dialogue and openness and all those sorts of things. What's the difference that real radical collaboration makes to a team or to an organization, in your experience? Why is it worth it?
3: Well, I think the the biggest difference is that it, it simply creates the ability to work and and uh, create in an environment that's free of mistrust and, and intrigue and fear and betrayals. It's, uh, it can create a place where people can flourish, uh, where they can contribute the best that they can do. Uh, and, and I think mostly organizations are realizing today, more than ever before, that they can't compete externally if they can't first collaborate internally. So it's, it's giving them the ability to be more effective Externally, that they wouldn't have if they can't uh, be more effective at collaboration with among themselves.
2: I love that statement. I'll just repeat it, that you can't compete externally if you can't collaborate internally. I love it. Right. Because, when, you know, go ahead, go ahead. Uh,
3: I do a lot of work in Sweden, and, and Sweden is a very collaborative environment, so they have a great value for collaboration there just for the sake of collaboration. But when the, bo- the book came out in uh, Chinese a number of years ago, I, did, I spent a lot of time in China. And there they really couldn't have cared less about collaboration for the sake of collaboration. They simply saw it as the most effective, fastest, cheapest way to become more competitive. Because they saw this, that you have to be collaborative internally to be effective externally. Okay. So it became very apparent in those two different cultures.
2: That's incredible. All right, so now you use the word radical collaboration. So what does that mean to you, and is that different than just regular ordinary collaboration?
3: Well, when we first started doing this, it was a number of years ago, and the level of collaboration that we were advocating appeared to be fairly radical at that time. And the organizations that were doing it produced radical results, too. I mean, there's been a lot of studies showing that uh, collaborative skills will improve the bottom line of an organization. It also improves the career path of individuals. Uh, a huge amount of research showing that collaborative environments will pretty consistently outperform adversarial environments. Uh, so it's, it, it can produce radical results if you can get to that level of collaboration.
2: Okay. For, and for so, me, what for does.
3: I going to say, ahead, for me ahead. personally, it simply makes life easier. You know, in, in one, of the, the, one of the studies that we had, a follow-up study, uh, the researchers were tracking people from nine different countries over a six-year period where they've been focused on learning some very basic collaborative skills. And they found that they were 45% more effective at getting their interests met whenever they were in conflict situations by becoming more skillful in those five skills. So, you know, that makes a pretty big difference for most people if you could get your interest met 45% more often anytime you get into conflict. So that's it's worthwhile individually.
2: That's fabulous. 45% more effective in getting interest met in conflict, in situations of conflict. Um, I presume yeah. that this kind of collaboration levels, and certainly if we have you know free from intrigue and distrust and betrayal and all those awful things, should drive up engagement as well. Does it?
3: There, there's, been a, there's been a strong correlation. We've done some studies where we measure the collaborative effectiveness of an organization, and they seem to correlate very much with the engagement levels when, the, when we've been able to do a, an engagement study at the same time. If they're down in one, they're usually down in the other.
2: Okay. I've believed for, or have started believing for the last couple of years that engagement and trust track anyway, and what you're talking about on these level of collaborative skills is increasing trust. Right. Okay, now I've got to go back That's to your study. You said there are five core skills that, in this study that people are 45% more effective in getting their interests met. What are those five core skills?
3: One is being able to stay collaborative under stress and, and okay. stay focused on mutual gains when you have a mistake or somebody, you know, you hit one of those road bumps in the road. The second okay. one is being able to create an environment where people feel safe enough to raise difficult issues and tell the truth. The third is being accountable for the choices that you make. A lot of times people don't think they have as many choices as they actually do. The Mm -hmm. fourth is increasing your self-awareness about your own defensiveness, because that's such a key. And then the fifth is being able to negotiate your way through conflict in a way that builds relationships rather than destroys them. And these are not... Uh, this is not rocket science You know, or brain surgery. These are fairly practical skills that you can learn and practice in a very short period of time and, and apply immediately and have a big impact on most organizations.
2: Okay. All right. Let me just repeat that because those are really worthwhile focusing on. So the ability to stay collaborative under stress so that we're focusing on mutual gains, not just individual interest. That right. we create an environment where it's safe to challenge and to say the truth or say the truth from my point of view, that we're accountable for the choices we make, recognizing that we often have more choices than we realize or are making more choices than we realize. We're aware, self-aware of the defensiveness and presumably some tactics for dealing with that and this ability to negotiate through conflict in a way that builds relationship, not, not tears them down.
3: Absolutely, absolutely
2: skills And people who practice those five core skills consistently, just to repeat the research, nine countries over six years, those people are 45% more effective at getting their interests met in conflict. That is worthwhile doing. So, you know, Jim, do you have a way of telling if a team is collaborating or not and if they're using these five skills?
3: Well, we can, we can go in and, and by asking certain questions or doing surveys, you can get a pretty good idea uh, if you look at things like, do people seek out the opportunity to help each other? Do they hide mistakes? Do they communicate with hidden agendas? Do they openly try to ensure the success of other people? Or are they willing to talk about difficult issues? Or do they they uh, are they fearful about raising difficult issues? Uh, those kinds of things are are pretty clear indications whether it's a collaborative environment or a non collaborative environment. Okay. So there are you know there are ways to. Uh, to get a good handle on that. Okay.
2: All right. So let's talk about this issue of control, which is a fascinating one for me. In today's risk environment, there's a need to make sure that there's nothing unknown happening in your area, wherever it is that you sit in the organization, and that there are going to be no surprises no surprises for you and no surprises for managers upwards, and that you've got things tightly controlled. Now, we know that if you're micromanaging people, that isn't going to go very well. But at the same time, this sense of having control is what everyone is dealing with. In fact, I find way too many people who would almost rather do the work themselves than to work their way through how do I make sure that it's controlled the way I want to make it controlled.
3: Yeah, I think that's the breeding ground of workaholism. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I agree with that, and it's not the right strategy we need to employ, but I certainly am empathetic for how people get there, just not where we want them to stay. Now, on the one hand, when I get people to talk about innovation, for example, or open discussions, there's this sense of I can't let it go too far because that means that I'm going to lose control of it. And at the same time, if we don't let go of some control, I'm presuming we can't get the level of collaboration we actually need. So what's your view on how control plays into this whole issue of collaboration?
3: Well, I think that that a lot of managers need to change their definition of success. uh, Because oftentimes we define success as not failing. And when they do that, they tend to over-control to try to protect themselves. And if they can, if they can change the, the way they view a success as being the success of the team uh, together, it's going to create that safer environment for people to collaborate, for people to contribute more.
2: Okay. But that's sometimes hard yeah. to sell upwards.
3: Yeah. People have to feel safe enough to try new things, and they have to feel safe enough to fail if you're going to have a, a very creative environment. You know, if, if, if every time somebody tries something new and they fail, somebody gets blamed or criticized for it, uh, that's not going to create that collaborative environment. It isn't going to be safe enough for people to do that. They'll just hunker down and they won't try out new ideas.
2: Yeah. Um, several years ago, I worked with a leader in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm running a large part of an organization and clearly a part of the organization where there was a lot of money spent and we didn't want a lot of failures. And you can imagine that in pharmaceutical, you spend a lot of time on the development. You don't want stuff to go wrong after you think you've got the drug developed. Yeah. Um, and in this particular case, though, what he was really good at doing was saying to his team, I can give you a tiny bit of budget, go experiment with this thing and come back and tell me. And if it starts to look good, then we can make the experiment bigger. Uh But the notion was to keep it just a little bit below below anybody's radar screen so that Uh you kind of had some data, you had some evidence, and it made it a safe environment to fail and they actually ended up doing a phenomenal blockbuster drug out of exactly that principle.
3: It's like stealth So is that what you're talking about?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Uh, keep it so it's uh, the, the risk is lower. You know, the risk of failure is lower. Uh, so you give people more creativity.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think there's more structural models than this than we've looked at. Okay, so give me an example from one of your clients. Um protecting confidentiality of course of what radical collaboration really looks like
3: well we've got a couple of big clients one one big bank in, um, in, in northern Europe really through in the Baltics and another uh, food service organization there one of the largest in Sweden and they've focused on these collaborative skills as well and they've probably put I don't know between the two of them maybe a thousand. People through uh, some kind of training program on that, and they they did a follow up study in both companies, the same follow up study, and they found that the participants were thirty percent more effective at managing differences among the people that they work with. Now that's a that's that's beyond just resolving uh, conflicts, but that's because we're talking about any kind of differences, whether it's uh, you know differences in ideas or whether it's an actual established conflict, but. Uh, that has a that has a big impact on organizations. Uh, in, huge in California when we when we tried uh, we did this started as a as a pilot project funded by the Hewlett Foundation and the state of California, and when we went out and worked with organizations trying to teach them collaborative skills. Uh, we reduced the amount of measurable conflict, things like unfair labor practice charges, requests for mediators, requests for fact-finders. We reduced that by almost 70% in over 90 organizations. That saved the state of California so much money that the state legislature created a nonprofit foundation to keep making it available for public sector organizations. It just had a a huge impact. Trust went up. Uh, The number of people who who described their working relationships as adversarial, reduced by 70%. And most of these were in, in uh, labor-management relationships in school districts. So that not only creates a better working environment for those people in that situation, you know, and better, a better work-life uh, for those people, but it also creates a better uh, educational environment for people that are, for the students, you know, that are in those environments because they have better role models. They can see how people can resolve conflicts without destroying the community by going out on strike or or battling each other. Okay. Big difference.
2: I, that's another radical. I mean, you, you've given several numbers here. 45% more effective in getting your interests met. 30% increase in effectiveness at dealing with differences. 70% reduction in some of the costs around conflict charges. Um, at Working relationships go up you know, 70% are not adversarial. Well, those are phenomenal. So when you put people through these training programs, is it the five core skills we talked about earlier, or is there another subset that you really try to get people to focus on?
3: No, it's it's those skills. If we can get people to become more effective at problem solving, if they can change their attitude about collaboration, simply simply paying attention to your attitude about collaboration is a huge first step uh, at the, the Stockholm School of Economics and in their international management program where I teach, they have to do a class project every year. And several years ago, they took on the, the class uh, as a class project, paying attention to what their attitude was, whether they had a collaborative attitude or an adversarial attitude. And most of us, if we just quiet our brain for, you know, five seconds or so, we can tell whether we are feeling adversarial and conflicted or whether we're feeling collaborative. And so over a period, I think it was like 45 days, several times during a day, they had to note down in a workbook uh, whether they had, we call it a, a red zone, which is a more adversarial attitude, or a green zone, a more collaborative attitude. They had to note it down. They didn't have to try and change it or anything. They just noted it down. And then they collected all this data, and they found that at the beginning of the process, more often than not, most of the people were feeling very adversarial, and it was showing up in their work. But simply by paying attention to what their attitude was several times during the day, by the time they got to the end of this project, more often than not, people were being much more collaborative and they were behaving much more effectively simply by paying attention to that. So if we can get people to start paying attention to what their attitude is and then pick up a few basic skills, become more aware of their own defensiveness, it has a huge impact in a very short period of time.
2: That's incredible. So this reminds me a little bit of the mindfulness work and the notion that if I can just get people to focus on their attitude, whether I'm feeling adversarial or I'm feeling collaborative, throughout the course of the day, paying attention to it gets people to alter their willingness to be collaborative, draw attention Absolutely. to it, in effect.
3: Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, there's more, there's more to it than that, but that's a great start. You know, if you can, okay. I would much rather have somebody – with a collaborative attitude to work with, even if they're not very skilled at, say, negotiating their way through a conflict, rather than somebody who's more skilled at negotiating a conflict but is more adversarial, with with an adversarial attitude.
2: All right. So we're part of the way home with changing the attitude, and that's a very simple exercise that anybody can do. Just regularly pay attention to how you're feeling about it. Okay, Jim, we're going to take a break. Um, And when we come back, I want to talk about some of these specific skills. And specifically, I want to turn to this notion about the defensiveness and how do you lower some of the barriers that are in the way of radical collaboration. We've already talked about the notion of your attitude as one of those. And I want to come to this second big skill you named, which is my own defensiveness. So with me today is Jim Tam. Jim Tam. Jim's book is called Radical Collaboration. You can reach him at www.radicalcollaboration.com. Jim has spent his career as, or most of his career as a senior administrative law judge in California with a bunch of bargaining disputes, including labor strikes with the school districts. And he's now teaching collaborative skills in a host of places around the world. We'll be right back.
1: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How
2: is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforaminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a
3: visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you,
0: Voice America
2: Business Network. Welcome back. With me today is Jim Tam and we have been talking about radical collaboration. Jim's book Radical Collaboration has been on Amazon's top seller list for a number of years. In fact, for the last it's been highly used in the last 11 years. The notion is that collaboration, increasing collaboration, does just about everything you would hope to have happen in the company. Increasing the bottom line, making a better environment for people, increasing levels of trust, um, increasing levels of engagement, and we could go on and on and on. It is highly correlated with all the good things that we're looking for. Now, Jim has said two things. Um, First is there are five core skills, and we can get people to practice those skills. It makes a substantial difference in the collaborative environment. Those skills are staying collaborative under stress creating an environment where it's safe to challenge to say the truth, being aware of the choices that you're making, even if it feels like there aren't many, being aware of your own defensiveness, and then being willing to negotiate through conflict in ways that build relationships. In addition to those five, there's a general overall component called your attitude towards collaboration. And the more you are aware of your adversarial feelings – the more likely I'm going to get you into a place where you can be more open to collaboration. So, Jim, I want to talk about one of the ones in this list of core skills that I think is the hardest for people to do, and that's this notion of defensiveness. And I do this coaching people all the time you know, you're trying to give them feedback. You're trying to give them help on something that they have just said they wanted help on. You're going working through 360 feedback, and the defensiveness just comes up, like, instantaneously. People don't even know they're that defensive. When it that's comes to, yeah.
3: That, that's because when we get defensive, it's almost always unconscious stuff. Mm-hmm. So we're not aware that we're even getting defensive until it's too late.
2: Okay. So I and I find people um, especially when we put politics in it, or the fear of politics, whether there's real politics or not, then people are just on edge, constantly. Nothing good seems to happen. So what's the secret to dealing with um, this defensiveness?
3: Well, First of all, it's helpful to know that defensiveness is a human condition. I mean, we're we're not going to eliminate it altogether. What we try to do is we try to help people be more skillful at managing their own defensiveness because in my experience, and I've got almost 50 years' experience working with people, you know, trying to to help them become uh, more effective at conflict resolution and, and building collaboration. In my experience, there is nothing that you can do that will help you become more effective at collaboration or solving problems or building relationships, more than better managing your own defensiveness. So what we try to do is get people to have a better understanding of what their defensiveness is about, help them recognize that they're getting defensive at an earlier point in the process, uh, and then figure out what steps they can take that will moderate the damage of their own defensiveness. So it's sort of a three-step process.
2: Okay. So repeat those steps for me again.
3: Well, the first is better understanding what defensiveness is about. Uh, Most people think that when we get defensive, it's because somebody has done something to us and we need to defend ourselves from that other person. But what's really going on is when we get defensive, we are defending ourselves from fears inside of us that we don't want to feel. Three biggies that come up all the time are fears about our own significance, our competence, and our likability. And so when we're getting defensive, what we're doing is we're behaving in a way that lets us not be aware of those underlying fears. So, for example, if I have some fears about my own competency for doing this program today and say things are going terrible, I mean, no, one's, no one's paying attention, it's not a good uh, program and uh, I'm not very happy, that could cause me a lot of discomfort that I don't want to feel because I like feeling confident. So maybe one way that I could avoid some of that discomfort is I might start blaming you. You know, well, this is not a very good show and you know that the, the tech, technical support isn't very good and the timing was bad and I come up with all sorts of defensive excuses. But it may seem like I'm defending myself from a bad situation, but what I'm really doing is I'm behaving in a way that lets that lets me not be in contact with that fear. So oftentimes Our defensiveness helps us hide our fears from ourselves. And unfortunately, that's a lot like just putting whipped cream on dog poop. And I know that's an (laughs) ugly metaphor, but most people remember that one. So so that's that's step number one. It's just knowing what it's about. Step number two is trying to spot it earlier. Since most of our defensive behaviors are unconscious, you know, we don't recognize that we're getting defensive. Uh, What can be more helpful for most of us is to start paying attention to our outward signs of defensiveness because those outward signs are typically easier to spot at an earlier point in the process. So for example, uh, I notice when I start getting defensive, I tend to uh, start breathing faster. I tend to start talking louder. I tend to feel very misunderstood and put upon. So if I'm in a situation and I'm getting some feedback and I notice all of a sudden I'm talking a lot louder and breathing faster and and feeling misunderstood, if I know that those are my signs of defensiveness, the alarm bells can go off, you know, ding, 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 hey, Jim, pay attention, you're doing that thing again. Then I can take some action. So what we try to do is we try to get people to get a better understanding of what their own signs of defensiveness are. And in the the Radical Collaboration book, we've got a list of about 50 different signs. Things like uh, loss of humor, taking offense, high charge of energy in the body, sudden drop in IQ, uh, endless explaining or rationalizing, withdrawal into deadly silence, cynicism, sarcasm, all those kinds of things. And it looks different for all of us. But if people can... Go through and get a better understanding of what it looks like when they start to get defensive, and then they're on the lookout for that. They can notice at an earlier point in the process that they're becoming less effective. So that's step two.
2: So, step two is being able to spot it. Yeah, and then step three.
3: Then, step three is what do you do about it then? And so, there are some basic things you can do. For example, it's important that you acknowledge to yourself that you're getting defensive. Now, that may not seem like it's a big deal, but it is a huge first step because if people don't acknowledge, if they don't notice it and then acknowledge that they're getting defensive, they won't take any other action. They'll just remain blissfully ignorant and ineffective. So you have to notice it. That's number one. Uh, Number two, since there's such a strong physiological, biological basis to defensiveness, anything you can do to slow down your physiology will be helpful. You know, maybe do a, a visualization or go into the restroom and splash some cool water in your face or go outside and just walk around the building and get some fresh air. But anything you can do to slow down your physiology would be helpful. Uh, something else you can do is start paying attention to your self-talk. Self-talk is that little voice that's in our head, our dialogue that we have with ourself. And it's usually the most accurate portrayal of what we're really thinking and feeling because we don't censor it we don't censor it because we're not going to share it with anybody and it can be both positive and negative but the negative stuff can really undermine us so if you notice that you're going into a meeting and you start thinking to yourself and you you know you hear this little dialogue in your head you know this isn't fair i'm going to get crushed they think i'm incompetent i don't know what i'm doing i'm going to look like an idiot you know consciously try to turn that into something less toxic for you and you don't have to try and convince yourself that you're Superman and you can fly, but just make it less poisonous. You know, maybe like, yeah, this is a difficult situation that's it's uncomfortable, but it's only a 45-minute meeting. I've done it before. I can do it again. Let's go. Uh, And then also something that's very helpful is to try to come up with a very specific action step uh, that relates to the individual's particular signs of defensiveness. So if... If your sign of defensiveness is flooding with information to prove a point, maybe your action step would be just to be quiet for 10 seconds. You know, just, just shut up for 10 seconds. Now, that isn't going to help you if your sign is withdrawal into deadly silence. Then what you need to do is you need to speak up and stay more engaged. If it's high charge of energy, maybe it's take three deep breaths. If it's a sudden drop in IQ, you know, maybe you go hide in the bathroom for five minutes to let your brain catch up with the rest of your body. Uh, it can be something that, that's, that you actually say, or it can be something that you do. If, if you're a visual person, yeah, you can try and get some kind of an image. Um, a woman at one of our NASA workshops, uh, her sign was always wanting the last word. And so she got this image of herself standing at the conference room door, throwing in the last word, and then slamming the door. And it was a way of not only reminding her of what she was doing, but it lightened up her mood a little bit. So she was less likely to do that. Okay. So if you can, if you know what it's about, if you can notice it at an earlier point in the process, and then you come up with some action steps, uh, those are three biggies that are going to help you just, you know, lower the damage that you're doing by getting defensive.
2: Okay. Wow, there's a lot in there, and I can certainly see how all of those play really effectively, um, and especially when we talk about this whole notion of the attitude to collaboration. And you can see why that's an underpinning here. That if I've got an attitude about collaboration, it's going to make me much more tuned to this defensiveness stuff. So just to repeat, it's to understand what it's about, and I just want to make sure everybody understood that it's a fear. It's an underlying whatever I'm saying about on the outside. What inside is really fears of being significant or insignificant, incompetent or unlikable. And then it's one of those three usually that are driving some of the defensiveness. And the secret is just recognize that it's happening.
3: Yeah, and well those then, are really common ones, yeah.
2: Yeah, common ones. They're not the only ones, but they are the big ones.
3: Right. Yeah.
2: Okay, and then yeah. spot it. Notice what my signs are because it's an unconscious process. So make it a little more conscious by just recognizing my outward signs. And then three is do something that's kind of in opposition to whatever that outward sign is. I guess it's the simplest way I would describe that. Yeah. And is there any ongoing work that makes it makes a person feel less defensive over time or is this just practicing this every single occasion what's going to make you better at the defensive side
3: well this is stuff that's that's helpful it's like first aid you know it's to stop the arterial bleeding when you're in the middle of a mess um, over the long term there's a lot of things you can do to, to uh, increase your self esteem what we're really talking about here is increasing your self esteem uh, when, when people don't have a feeling of self-significance or self-confidence or self-likability, uh, then they feel more vulnerable and they tend to get more defensive. So if, you, if you're if you feeling really competent, uh, that doesn't mean that you're competent in every place you are, but you're, you're self-sufficient. For example, when I was a judge, uh, I knew I was a good judge. I never got overturned uh, or hardly ever got overturned. Uh, I knew the law. I, I had created a lot of the law. My cases were cited in textbooks. And so at the end of every case, somebody was upset with me and that didn't bother Mm -hmm. me at all because I knew I was doing a good job. I had that self-confidence in that situation. When I made the switch from a judge to being a consultant and a trainer and a teacher at the university level, I knew that was a whole new skill set and I knew I wasn't very good at it. All right. So I, I found myself getting more defensive when I would be challenged in that situation compared to when I was a judge when I knew that I was very competent. So just figuring out what your vulnerabilities are and trying to increase those skill levels are one thing. But also, uh, a lot of this is psychological, and so it's very helpful to go back and see, well, when's the, the earliest time that you can remember when you had those feelings? You know, what, what kind of patterns do you see? Do you always... Get defensive in certain kinds of situations. Uh, do you always feel secure in other kinds of, cer- of certain situations? You know, what are the patterns there? And you can start digging deeper and deeper, looking back into your history, because all of our defensive behaviors are created through our history. This isn't something that you know we just uh, come up with out of the blue uh, as an adult. Usually, there our defensive behaviors are ways that we have learned to behave. Uh, that gives us some comfort or support in a way when, in a, at a time in our life when we didn't have as much choice. Uh, let me give you an example of that. If, if you're a little kid and your parents are fighting all the time, uh, this can be a really scary situation for a little kid. You, know, you can't stop the parents from fighting. You're too little to move away. So a really helpful situation for that little kid, uh, a strategy for the kid might be to turn all that fighting just into background noise, into gray noise. That is a very helpful strategy for that kid to get through a very difficult situation. But if that kid takes that same strategy into their adult life, it is a horrible strategy. Because then what it means is anytime they get into a conflict situation, they become a lousy listener. Because they've learned not to pay attention as a survival skill. So what helped them as a kid undermines them as an adult. Maybe the kid uh, couldn't turn the the fighting into background noise, so it it goes into their body. They hear it, but that's too painful. So another strategy could be just to tamp down their emotions a little bit. They numb themselves out so it doesn't hurt as much. Once again, that is a very helpful strategy for the kid. But again, if you take that into your adult life, it undermines you horribly because, yeah, you might not feel the bad feelings, but you're also going to miss all the love and the joy and the excitement. It's available because you're living a very narrow emotional bandwidth, you know, because you can't just eliminate bad feelings. You're going to either feel things or you're not going to feel things. So it's helpful okay. to have, uh, you know, to encourage people to go back and do a little emotional archaeology about where their, their defensive okay. behaviors came from.
2: Okay. I had some... It's striking to me how quickly you get into a very deep uh, self-awareness and self-examination. And I will bet that that surprises a lot of people because we started with this whole notion of collaboration and collaboration contributes to the bottom line and the ability to flourish and work. And I just want to remind us that it's this defensiveness that is one of the big barriers to making collaboration genuinely work.
3: So before we take a... uh, Go ahead. Just one other quick thing. People forget that it's people that collaborate, not organizations. And so if people can be more effective at it, then it makes a difference. It starts with the individual, not with the organization.
2: All right. Fabulous. Now, one of the other big things that you've talked about is this notion of creating a safe environment. And before we take a break, I just want to spend a couple of minutes on this one. And the notion of a safe environment is a place where it's okay for me to say, I don't think so this isn't working this way, I'm not sure, and to challenge. So what does it take to create a safe environment?
3: Well, uh, it takes a collaborative attitude on the part of the leader. It takes good listening skills. Uh, It takes support when people make a mistake or have a failure. Uh, You know, if, if people get criticized every single time, uh, they bring a difficult issue up uh, or if they make a mistake and they get smashed pretty hardly, they're going to stop doing that after a while. If people don't feel heard, uh, they're going to stop trying to raise difficult issues. So the, the most important things that the manager can do, I think, is pay attention to what their own responses are and uh, encourage people to, to be more forthright. Do a better job of listening. Don't smash people when they make mistakes.
2: There are a couple of CEOs that I've had the pleasure of working with who are delightful leaders in their own right, and they always talk about this challenge of moving from being a peer at the executive team level to being the CEO or being the leader if it's at a lower level, and that suddenly, when you before you were anointed as the leader, you could give your opinion the same as everybody else in the room. When you become the leader, the moment you give your opinion, everybody else stops talking. Yeah. So,
3: well, that's, you know, and partly that's a, a leader can create that kind of an environment or they can create an environment where people do keep talking. Okay. Uh, one of the best things you can do is to, to be open about that and say, listen, okay. I, want, I want this feedback. I want this support. I want this advice. I want you to mm-hmm. be able to influence me. And at some point in time, I'll make a decision. Okay. But I don't want to do that until I get the all the information that I need. So mm-hmm. you're not supporting me if you're not telling me what's on your mind.
2: Okay. All right, I'll go do one last story from my files and then we'll take a break again. Um one of the leaders who was US um and had moved to Asia and working in Asia and I was in quizzing him about what does it take to build a kind of collaborative challenging environment where people will say things to you of I disagree with you particularly in an Asian culture where that deference to hierarchy is particularly strong. And his comment was, I had to make a big deal out of every tiny little time anybody did anything to challenge me. I just praised them. I just celebrated it. I just got, you know, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I want more of that. And over time, actually built an environment in an unlikely country where his team would indeed challenge him. So I think you're right. That is back to what it is the leader is doing around listening, around creating the right attitude around supporting people even in the midst of mistakes or failures or on difficult issues.
3: Great example.
2: All right, fabulous. Let's take a break and when with me today is Jim Tam. Jim has been a judge dealing with collective bargaining disputes in California for many years, and he now teaches collaboration skills in a number of places. Harvard University, Stockholm School of Economics, University of California, NASA, Wallenberg Institute, and we could go on. The book, Radical Collaboration, has been a top seller for years, and you can reach him at www.radicalcollaboration.com. We'll be right back.
0: us on twitter at voice america trn get the lowdown on guests new shows and your favorites that's voice america trn
1: if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it
2: With me today is Jim Tam, and we have been talking about collaboration, what it is that take, that it takes to create a collaborative environment where really good things happen. Now, just to review some points from the very beginning of the show, if you have an environment that is more collaborative, you are going to find that it is more the best way to compete. So it's virtually impossible to compete externally if you don't compete collaborate internally. You're also going to find that people find that they're far more effective at getting their interests met that they're more likely to be engaged, that they're um, going to reduce some costs, particularly co- costs around conflict, and on we go. A pretty, pretty good thing. Now, we've talked about the skills that are necessary and the environment that's necessary to create re- collaboration. One of those is the attitude, a willingness to collaborate as opposed to be adversarial. The second is an ability to reduce your own defensiveness. And then the third is the creating an environment where it's safe to challenge. Now, Jim, one of the skills we talked about at the beginning that we haven't covered is this notion of negotiating. How do you negotiate through conflict in a way that builds relationships, not destroys them? What's your advice?
3: Well, this is, this is a big deal because a lot of times people are not very good at collaboration simply because they don't have problem-solving skills. They have the great attitude. You know, they, they want to collaborate. They just don't know how. So if we can get them to change the way that they negotiate their way through conflicts, it makes a big difference. What we have them do is we have them start focusing on what the underlying interests are of all the parties. Now, this is very different from the way that I learned to negotiate when I was back in law school in the early 1970s. There was a whole series of books that came out about that time that gave you different tactics and strategies, such as... Uh, you know, always put your opponent, and they called them your opponent, in a shorter chair so you were in the power position, or withhold information, slam it onto the table, or, you know, have the furniture arranged so it would reflect the sunlight into their eyes and distract them. And these were all tactics to make the other side feel insignificant, incompetent, and unlikable. And what we're saying is we we encourage you, the participants to let go of those tactics And create as safe an environment as they can, where people feel significant, competent, and likable. And so we say, first of all, create that safe environment. Be clear and open and direct about your wishes to collaborate and come up with solutions that meet the interests of as many people as possible. Then, instead of rushing to solutions, focus on understanding the interests of all the parties. And usually uh, when I was in a mediatory role and doing mediation like in labor management, I wouldn't let the parties go beyond that part of the process until each side could articulate the interest of the other side to the other side's satisfaction. Then they'd work together to try to find solutions that could meet, you know, get get your interest met very well, get the other party's interest met at least acceptably well, because if it isn't met acceptably well, you won't have a compliance-prone agreement. Uh, and we find that people are are much better at coming up with solutions if they have more information about what the interests are of all parties. So if you can just make that little shift in your thinking, anytime you go into a conflict or a dispute, what are the interests of all the parties here, that's going to make a big difference.
2: I um, Every now and then I'll be doing some team coaching where there will be conflict between individuals where it's gotten personal. Unfortunate, It happens. It's reality of dealing with human beings. And I often do this mediation process between them where it's the exact same thing. And if I have a two-hour meeting or a four-hour meeting, for that matter, I will spend three-quarters of the time making sure everybody understands how the other person is feeling and thinking. Then we yeah. go to solution. And solution is surprisingly easy once you've gotten that feeling, once that expectation, that thinking on the table or the interest on the table. So I totally agree with you.
3: It makes a huge difference.
2: And we want to rush through that process. You know, we want to get to the answer quickly, and that's the mistake. Okay? Yeah. All right. Any other advice for leaders trying to create greater collaboration inside their organizations, whether they've got the top-level support or not?
3: Well, I keep going back to the basics. Uh, you know, first of all, notice whether people are collaborating well. If they're not seeing whether you're contributing some way, is it the attitude that's rolling downhill? Uh, is the structure of the organization somehow not supporting collaboration? Then look at your own defensiveness. See what you can do to get better at your at managing your own defensiveness. Improve your own negotiating skills. Make sure that people have some basic training in how to deal with, uh, with conflicts and uh, basic collaboration skills. Uh, And, and, you know, those are pretty basic things. If you do that, that's going to make a big difference, I think, to your success level.
2: Sounds so simple.
3: (laughs) Well, it's not simple. Uh, It's uh, probably one of the more difficult things that anybody in a leadership role will ever be asked to do is to create a consistently collaborative working environment over the long term. Uh, but it'll make the difference between success or failure over the long term. More often than not, leaders get derailed. There have been a lot of studies about this, that the the thing that undermines leaders more than any other thing is lack of relationships and lack of collaboration these days. Mm-hmm. So it'll pay off.
2: Yeah, I certainly see that. Um, I often wonder how much you have to build trust first in order to get collaboration or how much the collaboration builds the trust. What's your view of how those two fit together?
3: It's both. It's absolutely both. It is possible. People think you can't collaborate if you don't have trust. It is absolutely possible to build collaborative agreements, even if you don't trust each other. But you need to change the nature of the negotiations away from what are we trying to reach an agreement on to how do we reach an agreement that both of us will be more likely to implement. So you need to talk about it. You need to be upfront about the fact that there's a lack of trust here and what can we do together to build that, to make that happen.
2: And presumably going through that process actually helps you inch forward on the levels of trust with each other.
3: Yeah, once you start seeing small uh, agreements that, are, that, are, that hold, uh, that builds trust. You know, you, you have to build trust in, in baby steps. Little steps over a long period of time. It's very difficult to build. It's very easy to screw up. You can make one big, massive mistake and really destroy trust for a long time. So you have to build it in baby steps, and it'll feed on itself.
2: Okay. Okay. I have a feeling we spend another hour talking about that one. It's a subject that fascinates me. I think we, um, we all know how critically important it is. We know how fragile it is. But we actually don't know much about what to do to begin to build the baby steps one step by the other. And it strikes me that some of this collaborative work is actually really the underpinnings of what it takes to build trust over the end. Um, Jim, just before we close, um, any advice for anyone whose manager, whose immediate manager, is not particularly a believer in this collaborative thing? Uh, Any advice for how to navigate that?
3: (laughs) Well, look for people who are uh, open to it. Try to build a lot of networks around. Build relationships with people who are open to building relationships. Uh, Try to get a better understanding of what the boss's underlying interests are and try to work towards those interests. If you can do that, you listen to the boss. You know, you you can use all of these skills moving upward rather than looking downward on your employees as well, Uh, but to figure out what their interests are and try to meet those interests.
2: Okay. Well, so basically what you're saying is I take my collaborative skills, particularly negotiating through conflict, and I apply them right here with a boss who isn't necessarily in love with the idea of collaborative work. So I...
3: Yeah, everything that we're talking about here uh, is going to work whether you're looking up, whether you're looking down, whether you're at home with your family, whether you're dealing with your kids or your parents or your employees or your neighbors. They're all helpful relationship building skills that are going to work no matter which direction you're focused on.
2: Okay. All right, Jim. Fabulous show. With me today is Jim Tam. His book is Radical Collaboration. It's been a top seller for years and highly used and recommended. You can reach him at www.radicalcollaboration.com. Now, I'm going to try a dubious task of summarizing all of Jim's key points in one, one minute, maybe a minute and a half summary. So I'm going to start with the notion that it's your attitude to collaborate or to be adversarial that makes all the difference in the world. You can change your attitude by just paying attention to what your attitude actually is. That's going to increase the chances that you'll be open to collaboration. Once we get that kind of going for you as an individual, then there are five core skills, which is about staying collaborative even under stress are creating an environment where it's safe to challenge and it's safe to tell the truth. And for that means that for the leader, it has a lot to do with paying attention to how you listen and how you criticize people and making it okay for mistakes or challenges to happen. Then the next part is really being aware of the choices that you make. And everybody has choices, even if you feel fairly powerless in the situation. And then the fourth one is being self-aware of your own defensiveness. And as Jim has pointed out, defensiveness is an unconscious process. And it's often tapping something that we're afraid of. Afraid of not being liked, not being competent, or not being significant among others. And there are some strategies for being able to lower that. And then the final thing is learning how to negotiate through conflict. Which ultimately comes down to taking the time and the attitude to fully understand and be able to articulate the other person's interest long before you go to the solution. So Jim, how did I do in one minute?
3: Great summary. I couldn't have done it (laughs) better.
2: All right. Jim, thanks for being on the show. It's been really fabulous. Um, Join us next week and we're going to talk about working 24-7. How the heck do you survive the demands of today's environment? Join us next week.
1: Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.